I will invite you to bow, bow your hearts with me as we begin. He will hold me fast. This is my hope. This is our hope this evening. With every heart here and the situation that they're in, Lord, we want to confess that our only hope is that you will hold us fast. We don't depend on ourselves. We don't depend on our abilities. We don't depend on other men, but we, we depend on you. Lord Jesus, this evening, we pray that your word would work in our hearts and we would be reminded of your amazing faithfulness to your people. As Paul once wrote to this struggling church, that these same truths that were applicable to them, that they may resonate in our hearts. And that each person would walk away from here tonight encouraged, not because their situation has changed, but because they have fixed their eyes on the faithful God who will carry them through the end. Pray for myself that you would give me grace, deliver your word, and we do ask, as we sang, that you would give your word success. And that not only as I speak, but that your word would transform our hearts. And so that this week we would live differently than we lived the previous week. Because we have been reminded of our amazing hope that we have in God. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This evening I want to bring you a message entitled, Hope for a Struggling Church. As you're making your way there, I want to introduce you to John, a 23-year-old single guy living in the city of Corinth. John grew up in a pagan family. Since he was a little kid, his parents took him to this temple right in the city to offer sacrifices to idols there. About two years ago, John heard that there's this new movement in the city called Christianity, and he decided to check it out. He figured out where they're meeting, and he went there one day. He came in late because he didn't want anyone talking to him, and he didn't want to talk to anybody. So he walked in, he sat down and the guy got up in the front and started reading something from a scroll and then they began to sing. Now John himself, he never heard anything like that before. And he was almost starting to enjoy it, but all of a sudden people all around him started getting up and screaming and yelling, some in gibberish, just like he heard in that pagan temple right across the bay. He sat there for a minute or two and they're like, he walked out thinking, man, these guys are crazy. They're mad. He left that meeting and didn't return for 18 months. He said, these people are crazy. But he knew that there was something there about that reading of Scripture. He knew that there was something there that he needed to see. And so 18 months later, he said, well, I should give him another chance. So he went back. And as he started going to that church, the Word of God did its work. And John got converted. John got saved. And as John, 
Why don't you get plugged into this, that church? It was easier said than done. Because you see, in that church, they had a lot of cliques. For example, there was the founders clique. The founders clique, these were the original members of the church. They said that they followed a guy named Paul. He's the one who started their church. Not only that, there was Apollos' clique. He was the preacher. If you want to hear preaching, you go to Apollos. He was the man. You want to attend his Bible study. And then there were some guys that said, hey, we're following Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' apostles. And so we're following this guy. And then there was the holiness club. These were the super spiritual ones who said, well, forget Paul, forget Apollos, forget Cephas. You know, we and Jesus are like this. He talks with me. He walks with me. We're like this. Now, John wanted to get plugged into the church, but it was difficult. But what other options did he have? There's no other church in Corinth. You're a Christian. You know that you got to go to church. So John decided to kind of get plugged into one of those groups. And as he got involved in that church, he learned that there are some bizarre things going on on the inside. For example, he learned that college guys in the Bible study regularly visit prostitutes on Friday night off when they have that. Not only that, he learned that his Bible study leader is living with his stepmom. And when he went to talk to his pastor about it, his pastor said, well, we can't really confront him because, you see, if we do, they're going to leave the church. We're going to offend them. We're going to hurt them. Now, John thought, man, this is, this is really, really weird. And not only was this moral decadence in the church, theologically, these guys, you know, weren't on par. Because, you know, they had a lot of guys who prized eloquence. Yeah, they were, they were so eloquent. They could speak well. They can sell eyes to Eskimos. And you know, one of these guys, last Easter, he preached a sermon entitled, Seven Reasons Why There Is No Resurrection of the Dead. And not only that, these guys really got after these young guys. And he said, listen, if you really want to be spiritual, you don't want to get married. Because marriage, it will distract you from Christ. You want to abstain. For marriage. You know, the most difficult time for John was probably Sunday nights. Sunday nights was the time when they got together with church for communion. You see, their communion was not like something they will have in the 21st century, where they just pass the cup and pass the bread 10 minutes at the end of the service and then they're done. No, when they got together for communion, they had a meal. They got together at night. Why? Because people like John had to work during the day. They don't get day off on Sunday. The church is made up of slaves. It is made up of lower class people. And so they got to work on Sunday. So they get together on Sunday night. Except for the rich, of course. You see, last Sunday night when he came to church, this was the scene he observed. He came in late because he was held up at work. And he came in and there were the rich. Oh, they, they came early. They came early and they brought their food. They brought their drinks. And by this time, some of them were drunk. And then there were the poor guys. They were just looking at those guys and wishing that they can enjoy at least some of the things that they had. Now, John himself is struggling. Besides all this mess in this church, he himself is struggling. You see, his pagan background, his sexual immorality that he was engaged in, he's tempted to go back. And then when he sees these Christians flaunting their Christian liberty because now they're free in Christ to do whatever they want, John is wondering if he's even saved. He's wondering, what in the world am I doing in this church? As you listen to John's story, you might think that this is insane. I've heard of a messed up church, but this? 
Now, I tell you this story not just because I want to tell you stories. I tell you this story because I want you to understand the situation into which Paul is writing this letter. Everything I told you about John is taken straight from this book. Everything that I told you was happening in the church of Corinth. And this is the situation into which Paul is writing this letter. Now, if you were Paul, if you were to write a letter to this church, what would you say to them? How would you start? If it was me, I'd probably say, Paul, an apostle, just so you know that I have authority to tell you what I'm about to tell you. Are you guys crazy? What in the world is going on in your church? Are you guys nuts? Are you even saved? Are you even Christians? Now, is that what Paul writes? I think we often dismiss the introductions to the book as mere formalities. It's just, you know, they got to say hi, they got to say who it is from and who it is to. But we actually miss the point. And I think we are able to do that in this book as well. So that's why I want us to look at these first nine verses in chapter one. This is where Pastor Paul begins his letter to this messed up church, to this struggling church. I want you to put yourself in John's shoes. And you came to church today with all that in the back of your mind. And I want to listen, I want you to listen to this introduction to Paul's letter. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you. For the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in him. In all speech and all knowledge. Even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who will confirm you to the end. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into the fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, if you heard these words in that situation, what would you be thinking? Paul, uh, are you sure you're writing this to us? I mean, I understand if you wrote this to, say, Philippians. But to us? Paul, uh, maybe Paul just doesn't know what's going on in our church. That he is so encouraging, that he is so uplifted, that he has so much hope. Maybe he just doesn't know what's going on in our church. No, he does. He's going to write 16 chapters about everything that's going down in our church. So why is Paul speaking this way? I want us to briefly look at this text tonight tonight. 
And I want you to see the heart of Paul for this church. You see, these verses, they reveal Paul's heart, what Paul felt for this church. Yes, Paul will confront him in due time. But he starts with this attitude of hope. He starts with having this amazing hope for this struggling church. See, I want to give you hope tonight. Regardless of your situation, regardless of your trouble, regardless of your pain in your personal life, in your family, in your church, regardless of what's going on, I can tell you that if you are a Christian, I can give you some hope today because Paul gave hope to this struggling church. I want to give you three reminders from this text. Three reminders which Paul gave to this church. The first reminder, Paul says, I want to remind you about who you are. And you are saints. First reminder, who you are, saints. Second reminder, I want to remind you of what you have. And that is grace. And the third reminder, I want to remind you what you will be. And that is blameless. Who you are, what you have, and what you will be. We begin with the first point. First reminder, I want to remind you about who you are. Paul begins this letter in verse 1 when he says, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and sustains our brother. According to the first century letter writing convention, all the letters began this way. You begin with the author, you tell him who you're writing to, and then you have a standard greeting. That's what Paul has here. Paul says, Paul, and I am an apostle. That an apostle is not just to distinguish Paul from other Pauls, but an apostle is basically Paul saying, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have authority to tell you what I'm going to tell you right now. This letter is binding on you. I have a right to tell you. This is not just your friend writing to you. This is not just your buddy giving you a few suggestions. No, this is letter, and I am an ambassador of God. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And by the way, I didn't volunteer for the job. That's why he says here, I am an apostle, and I am an apostle because God chose me to be an apostle. I am an apostle by the will of God. And Sosthenes, our brother, this guy is mentioned only one other time in Scripture, in Acts chapter 18, where Paul ministered in Corinth, and we're told that he was a leader of a synagogue. This guy was probably converted under Paul's ministry there in Corinth while he ministered there for 18 months, and now he was probably ministering with Paul, and since this church was so familiar with this guy, they knew them. Paul includes him as a core writer in this letter. Now he says here, having introduced himself, he introduces his readers in verse 2. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. To the church of God. From the very outset, from the first words of this letter, Paul wants to establish this fact, that this is a church of God. This is not Paul's church. This is not Apollos' church. This is not Peter's church. This is not my church. This is God's church church from the very beginning he wants to say listen i am writing to the church of god and this church is located in the city of corinth church of god if you observe them from afar you might wonder if they are church of god 
And yet Paul, knowing everything he knows about these guys, he says, I am writing this letter and I am writing to a church of God. Paul does not question whether they are saved. He will do that about some of them later on in this letter. But in general, he's writing to this church and saying, you are a church of God. Which tells me that a church with all the problems that the Corinthians had can still be a church of God. The church of God is not a gathering of perfect people. The church of God is not a club for moral elites. The church of God is not a high society for the privileged. It is not a marine corps for select few and the proud. No, the church of God is more like a hospital for broken people. That's what the church of God is. And can you imagine walking through the hallways of a hospital and seeing a guy who walks around and says, man, sick people, sick people, all I see is sick people. If you saw someone like that, you tell him to check in the front desk, right? What do you expect in a hospital? You expect broken people. You expect hurting people. And this is what the church of God is. The church of God is made up of people who are struggling, who are hurting. Let's admit that all of us, in one way or another, are broken. If you were not broken, you'd be perfect. And since none of us are broken, all of us are struggling in one way or another. So it is to be expected that on this side of heaven, the church will be made up of broken and hurting people. Now that's not to say that we don't deal with sin in church. Paul will get to that. And he will confront him about not dealing sin with the church. Yes, it is precisely the opposite. Because we are broken people, God uses the church to conform his people into Christ's image. And it is as we rub shoulders with one another and as we minister to one another, this is where we are transformed. This is where we are changed. And notice that Paul does not begin by telling them what they need to do but he begins by reminding them of who they are. In Christian life, what you are precedes what you do. Because you see, if you are not a believer, it doesn't matter what you do. You can do all the right things, you can keep all the laws and all the regulations, but if you're not a believer, it does not matter. So when Paul opens this letter, he begins by reminding them of who they are. He gives two descriptions. First of all, he says there's the church of God. And then he describes, he gives two descriptions of the people who make up the church of God. He says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. If I heard John's story, I wouldn't say that this church was full of saints. Would you? Now Paul knew exactly what's going on in that church. And he opens the letter and he says, to the church of God, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Notice he identifies believers who make up the church in Corinth as saint. Now saint is not what you become when you die and when Catholic church elevates you to that status. That's not a saint. 
According to Paul and according to the Bible, saint is every single believer at the moment of their conversion. Saint means that you're holy and you're separated. At the moment of your conversion, when you believe in Christ, God takes all of your sins, forgives your past, present, future sins. He declares you absolutely righteous. Why? Because you have the righteousness of Christ. And positionally, at the moment of your conversion, you are absolutely holy, absolutely righteous, because God looks at you through the blood of Christ, and you can not be better at that moment. You're perfect. You are saints. And positionally, that's what Paul is talking about. But you see, in the church, those who are positionally saints don't often act as saints because we're still in this flesh, because we still have sin. And if you were to look at the church in Corinth, you would see a lot of people who act more like sinners rather than saints. And yet Paul says, let me remind you, you are a saint. This is what you are. The remainder of the letter will urge them to live out in practice what they are in position. But it starts here. You see, he's saying, listen, in spite of your sin, in spite of your struggle, in spite of the difficulties that you are facing and going through right now, you are God's church. Yeah. There will be problems in the church. Yes, there will be problems in your personal life. Yes, there will be problems in your family. Yes, you will sin. But if you are in Christ Jesus, you are positionally declared righteous. MacArthur says, in practice, they were gross sinners. But in position, they were pure saints. Having given the first description, he adds another one. He says, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and our. You see, he reminds this church in Corinth that they are just a small part of something that is much bigger. Hey, it's not all about you. You are not it. You are just a small local congregation that makes up a bigger body of Christ. There are saints all over the world, all over the place that are established. And this body of Christ includes you. And notice the description. Saints are those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What makes you sane is not what you do. What makes you saint is not your performance. Oh, now you're measuring up to be a saint. No. He says, if you called on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means if you are submitted to the Lordship of Christ, if you have confessed your sin, if you are in relationship with Christ, you are a saint. Your identity is hidden with Christ. And since Jesus Christ is your Lord, he has a right to tell you what you need to do and how you ought to live. And that's why he will spend 16 chapters telling them, how they ought to live. So having introduced himself, having identified his readers, he gives them the standard greeting that he has in all the letters. In verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace. Grace, a common Greek greeting. If you were to write a letter to somebody, you would introduce it like that. Grace. Peace. Common Hebrew greeting. Shalom. That's what it is. And Paul has taken these two concepts. He has put them together and he says, grace to you and peace. And both grace and peace, they come from Jesus Christ. And they come from God the Father. The first reminder to the struggling church is remember who you are. You are saints in Christ Jesus. 
The second reminder. The second reminder that Paul gives to them is remember what you have. Remember what you have. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you. If you knew everything about this church, would you be able to say this? Listen, I think about you guys, and I thank my God every single day for all of you concerning you. Now, you would probably say, you know, when I pray about you, I, I ask the Lord to do his work among you. Paul says from the very outset, he says, I think about you all the time. And what my attitude is I am grateful. I am grateful. I am hopeful. I thank my God for all of you. You know, John Newton said it well. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, this was Paul's attitude. Paul is saying, I thank my God always concerning you. In the midst of all the sin, in the midst of all the struggle, in the midst of all the pain, Paul says, I see things that I could be grateful for. I see things that I can thank my God for. You see, there are some people who are pessimistic. For them, the glass is always half empty. No matter what, they always find something to pick at. They always find something, oh, this is wrong and this is wrong. Paul was the other way around. Paul says, listen, I look at all this mess, and I see rays of light. I see hope. I see beauty. I see something that I can bow my knees and I can thank my God for. So what does he thank God for? He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. Grace. I thank God because he's so gracious to you. So gracious to you. You see, it's like you're going through a difficult time and you think your world is falling apart and someone just comes along and says, listen, I know it's tough. I know it's hard. But I see so much God's grace in your life. I mean, look at this. And look at that. Look how God sustains you here. Look at how God provides here. Look at all this. And he just takes your eyes off of your circumstances, off of your pain, off of yourself, off of your sins, and he refocuses you on God. And he sees that, yes, it's dark, but in the midst of that darkness, there's so much you can be thankful for. There's so much grace in your life. And this is what Paul does here. I thank my God because God has given you so much grace. Now, how was grace demonstrated to this church? Well, first of all, we know that their salvation was all of grace. We know St. Paul who writes this, he wrote, he wrote Ephesians 2.8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Corinthians became believers, not because they were so sophisticated and so smart. No, Corinthians became believers because God has given them grace to believe. Notice in our verse here, he says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. Paul was the one who preached the gospel to them. They got converted on his ministry. If you look at chapter 2, verse 3, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. You see, when the word of God was preached among them, the Spirit of God confirmed the Word of God, both externally by signs, wonders, and miracles which were performed by the apostles, and internally. Not only were they saved by grace, 
But these guys are also sustained by grace. Look at verse 5. He says that in everything, in everything, you were enriched in him. In all speech, in all knowledge, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift. You see, the struggling church was a gifted church. You know 1 Corinthians. You know that Paul will spend three chapters later on in this book talking about spiritual gift. You see, they had problems not because they didn't have grace. They have problems because they misused and misapplied that grace that was given to them. Notice Paul says, you were enriched in him. Grace is God's gift. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. It's something that God gives to you. And it's a passive. He says, you were enriched in him. This is some, that's something that God has given to you. The church was immature, not because they lacked something. They were struggling with all their sin, not because, well, I wish if we had this, then we would be doing fine. No, Paul says, listen, you were enriched in him. You have everything that you need. As a church, we have everything that we need to be what God wants us to be. We have that. God says here, I will give you grace. Peter as a parallel passage to this, he's writing to a scattered church. A church that doesn't even have a church building. A church that you know, was persecuted, that lost everything. And Peter's writing to them in 2 Peter. He says, grace to you, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he says this, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. If you're in Christ Jesus, if you have the knowledge of God, as he says it here, you have divine power. And you have the divine power that has granted to us everything that we need for life and godliness. What God wants you to be, you have power to be. Not because, again, not because of you, but because you have the Spirit of God who gives you the grace of God. The church in Corinth misused grace. And notice he highlights two things. He says, in speech and in knowledge. Again, this is particularly relevant for the church in Corinth because you remember chapter 12 and you remember chapter 14. Those were the things that they were misusing. The gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues. Instead of using that to build up believers in the church, they used it to elevate themselves. They used it to show themselves superior to others. And Paul acknowledges that, listen, those things are manifestation of God's grace. Notice he says here, you are not lacking in any gift. And the word gift here could be misleading, at least for us here. This word here is where we get the word charismatic because they're all about gifts. You see, when you hear the word gift, all of a sudden you start thinking about abilities. You start thinking about the list of things that, okay, which one do I have here? Okay, there's 27 or depending on which version you look at. Oh, there are these things and these things, these gifts that God gives to the church and I wonder which one I have here. Listen, that's not what Paul is saying here. It's not about figuring out which gift of the 27 or however many there are in the New Testament you have. No, literally Paul's saying here, you have God's grace in you. The word gift can literally be translated, you have manifestation of grace. Which is basically to say, you are not lacking in any grace. 
Which means that in any situation that you are, in that situation, you have sufficient grace to act the way God wants you to act. You have sufficient grace to minister to the others in that situation. God has not left you. God has not abandoned you. But he has given you sufficient grace in every situation of your life. Whether that's pain, whether that's joy, whether that's struggle. In that situation, you have God's grace available to you to get you through that. It's just by way of illustration, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Right into the same church, this is what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about thorn in the flesh. Now, whatever that was is not essential at this point. But we know that it was painful, and we know it was something that Paul wanted to get rid of. In verse 8, he says, I have entreated the Lord about this on three different occasions. And what was God's response? Verse 9 says, he said to me, my, what, grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. You know, we have a huge poster in our living room with this verse, because I need to be reminded of this. You need to be reminded of this. That sometimes you think that your world is falling apart and God here said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. The struggle you, that you have is not bigger than God. The struggle that you have is not bigger than God's grace. And God's grace is sufficient for you. Notice that God did not take away Paul's struggle. Paul prayed and God says, okay, fine, I'll take No. No, he says, you're going to go through that struggle, but in the midst of that struggle, I'm going to supply you with grace. I'm going to give you power to walk through that. Listen, is that not encouraging? If you were in the church of Corinth, if you were so struggling with all the things that were going on in this church, and Paul is saying to you, guys, remember what you have. In all your struggles, in all your pain, you have God's grace available to you to deal with anything and everything that comes your way. And notice Paul says you have God's grace as you are awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This present world, this present struggle should make you want to wait or await eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says here, as you eagerly await. You see, if you are too comfortable here, then you might start enjoying it too much. And I think when Paul is saying here, I think it's safe to say that the reason why God allows us to go through difficult times is so that we would long for heaven. This is not your home. You are waiting for something that is going to be much better. And he's saying here that you are awaiting and you have God's grace that will carry you through until you get to heaven. Until Jesus Christ himself will appear. But until that point, church, you are going to struggle with sin. You are going to endure pain. You are going to endure suffering. That's just par for the course. But in the midst of that, God comes alongside of you and says, Church, you have my grace that will carry you through to the end. First reminder, remember who you are. You are saints in Christ Jesus. Second reminder, remember what you have. You have God's grace. Final reminder, 
Remember what you will be. Remember what you will be blameless. Look at verse 8. Who will confirm you to the end? Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the same word in verse 6 where he says, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, you heard the gospel. You believed the gospel. You got saved by the gospel. Now he says that you are waiting for a day. You are waiting for a day when Jesus Christ himself will appear. And when Jesus Christ himself will appear, you will be confirmed blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is an amazing promise. This is an amazing promise to a church that is struggling with sin. This is an amazing promise to you that you look at your life and you see, man, like I'm so messed up in so many areas. I struggle with this and I do this. I don't want to do this, but I'm struggling with this. And it's like Paul crying out in Romans 7. He says, who will set me free from this body of death? Why? Because I struggle with sin and I will struggle with sin till the day you die and so will you. But Paul looks forward to the future and he says when Jesus Christ will appear, he will confirm you blameless. You see, when Jesus Christ will appear, according to Ephesians 5.27, he said he will present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such things. But she would be holy and blameless. Listen, you got problems in your church? You got problems in your family? You have something to look forward to. A day is coming when all of us will look at each other and say, well, what happened to you? Second coming happened to you. That's what happened. And so that's what he's saying. Listen, church, believe this. Notice. And notice the certainty. Notice the certainty. He says, who will confirm you to the end? There are no ifs. There are no buts. There are no hopefully. There are no maybes. No. If you are a saint, positionally, practically, you will be blameless and holy in his sight. You have that guarantee. He doesn't lose anybody. We're saying, he will hold me fast. That's your hope. That's your hope. Your hope is not your faithfulness. Your hope is his faithfulness. Your hope is that he's going to hold you fast. And Paul says, listen, church, let me remind you, with all of your sin, with all of your problems, with all of your difficulties, let me tell you, a day is coming when you will be perfect. Not only positionally perfect, but you will be practically perfect. Because when you see him as he is, you will be just like him. That's his promise here. That is what he's saying. But notice, this will not happen until the day of Christ Jesus. Which tells us that you cannot expect people to be perfect in this life. You expect people to grow in this life if they're believers. But you don't expect them to be perfect. You cannot be perfect yourself. You cannot have a perfect family. You cannot have a perfect church. Because as soon as you start saying that you're perfect, you're no longer perfect. You cannot be perfect in this life, period. So no matter where you go, you cannot escape yourself in any and every situation. You will have messed up people. You will be around messed up people. Others will hurt you in this life. You will hurt others in this life. Why? Because you have indwelling sin. And the promise that you have here is that it is only that day when Jesus Christ appears 
When Jesus Christ comes, when he will transform your body, he will give you a new body, he will take away your indwelling sin, and it is only on that day when you will be confirmed blameless. You might say, well, Paul, how do you know? Why are you so confident? Why are you so encouraging in us when we are in this mess? I want to tell you that these three reminders, who you are, what you have, and what you will be, they're all rooted in verse 9. In verse 9, Paul, why are you so encouraging? Why do you have such a hope? You know why I have such hope? Look at verse 9. God is faithful. Literally in the text, it says, faithful is God. With emphasis, with emphasis here is on faithful. Listen, this is the rock on which you can stand when your world is falling apart. This is the truth you can hold on to when you sin or where other sins against, sin against you. This is the promise that you can cling to when you, your family, your church blows up. This is one thing that you can hold on to. Regardless of what happens, this is one truth that will hold you fast. God is faithful. Your hope is not in men, but your hope is in God. You see, even the best men are men at best. People will disappoint you. People will hurt you. Situations will turn south. But in the midst of those situations, Paul says, God is faithful. God will never go back on his promises. God made certain guarantees. God made certain promises to you. And he just told you that the same God made a guarantee to you that one day you're going to be perfect. One day you're going to be without sin. Sin will be no more. This is what he just said. And I can tell you that. Why? Because God is faithful. You see, all of God's grace is rooted in his faithfulness. You see, God was faithful to you at the moment of your salvation because he demonstrated his grace to you and you got saved. God is faithful to you in your sanctification because he walks with you through a path of life and he carries you and he gives you sustaining grace in those situations. And God is faithful to get you to the end and no one is going to fall out. He says those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he called, justified, he justified and he will glorify. No one falls out anywhere in between. Why? Because God is faithful. You see, God never aborts his missions. Never. He doesn't say, well, uh, oh, oh, well, I tried. It doesn't work. These people don't want to go. These people don't want to change. So messed up. Uh, forget them. God never does that. And even with this church right here, Paul says, listen, the reason why I can write this to you, because God is faithful. Because I know that in the midst of your mess, God will still accomplish his plan. God will still get you to glory if you are saved. Regardless of the mess that you're in, God is going to make sure that you're going to get to the end. He will never disown you. So church, a reminder for us here right now is that you are saints positionally in Christ Jesus. You have all that you need to walk through life because you have God's grace available to you. And you have a bright future to look to. You have a bright future to look to because one day you are going to be perfect. I am going to be perfect because God is faithful. Are you struggling tonight? Do you feel like in the midst of all the chaos you are sinking 
Or maybe you are overwhelmed by your sin or by sin of others. Maybe sometimes you feel like, I just want to give up. I just don't have strength anymore to fight this. Listen, if you're a believer, let me tell this directly to you on the authority of this text. You have hope. And you have hope because God is faithful to hold you fast. And does that mean that we let go and let God? No. There are 16 chapters in this book. Having given them this hope, Paul will address sin in their life. And he's going to say, guys, if you are positionally saints, if you are positionally declared righteous, then you must work out your salvation. You must live up to the calling that you have to be saints in Christ Jesus. This is where Paul starts, but that is not where he ends. He's going to write a whole lot more after this section, but he starts with this very encouraging tone. Listen, God is faithful, and because God is faithful, you should be faithful. You see, it starts with God, and you only work out that which God gave to you. Until we get to glory, we will struggle with sin. You will have pain, and we must not be surprised by those occasions. But in the midst of those situations, we must always keep this at the forefront of our mind. God is faithful. And this will get you through the week. This will get you through your next trial. This will get you through no matter what you're going through. Why? Because you can look to God and not to everything that is happening around you. Finally, I want to say a word maybe to those who are not saints. Because this hope is only for those who are saints in Christ Jesus. It is only for those who know Christ as their own. If you do not know Christ, if you do not have fellowship with Christ, listen, this miserable life is the best you get. As I was studying yesterday for this, Jehovah Witnesses came to my door. Jehovah False Witnesses, by the way. Now I love when they come. You know, we pray for opportunities to preach the gospel to unbelievers. And then when the fish jumps into your boat, we start complaining, right? So these guys came and two men had a kid with him, with them. And so they start their presentation and this kid just pulls out his phone. And he reads to me a passage from the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, for the living know they will die but the dead do not know anything. They don't believe in hell. I'm like, that's kind of discouraging. So long story short, as we were talking about it, I said, hey, guys, you guys walk around and you guys say that you preach the gospel. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we preach the gospel. I said, do you guys have good news for me? He says, yeah, we'll come back next time and we'll tell you. I said, hey, come on, man. You don't leave me hanging like that. You tell me the dead don't know anything, you're going to die, and you're just going to walk away till next time. I was like, you got good news for me? He's like, yeah. He opens his Bible and he goes to Mark Chapter 12, and he reads the passage that we all know. And he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I said, that's your good news? He's like, yeah. Well, that's not good news. How's that good news? 
Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Do you? No, you don't. Why are you telling me? You just condemned me. You just tell me I'm going to hell because I can't love the Lord your God and you don't have. Let me tell you guys, I got good news for you. I got good news for you that you are sinners under God's wrath. And God loved you so much that he took his only son, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life. And then he went to the cross, died for you, died for your sins, paid for them, rose from the dead on the third day. And now if you believe and you place your faith in Christ, you will have eternal life. I got good news for you. Now, I got good news for you. Listen, no matter who you are, no matter what you're going through, be good and do good is not good news. Obey God is not good news. The good news is that someone else obeyed God on your behalf. And now you are righteous and now you obey God out of gratitude because of what he has done for you. Listen, if you do not know Christ, if you are a saint, the good news is that someone else has done it all for you, Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, you have good news. That all of your sins have been paid for. Your eternity has been guaranteed. And one day you are going to be like Jesus. Why? Because God is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so amazed. We're so amazed that you give such promises to us when we deserve none of them. We have your grace. We've been made believers because of the work of Christ. And we have hope today because we serve faithful God. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and you would bring them to the hearts of the people, to all of us, that as we walk away from this building tonight and as we're going to face reality tonight and tomorrow and this week, when there will be things that will discourage us, when there will be situations when we think we're losing it. But I pray that you would, by your spirit, remind us that you are faithful. And we can bank on that no matter what. We thank you. In the name of Christ, amen.